Welcome, everyone. You are watching Dangerous Thoughts. I'm Carter Laren. This is Unsafe Space. This is a new show that we're trying out uh, every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. We're live streaming it. It's a chance to go a little more into maybe practical philosophy, how to think clearly, that kind of stuff. Um, if you are watching on YouTube, thank you in advance for jabbing that button. Jab the subscribe button. Uh, make sure it's vaccinated. And as always, you can watch on unsafespace.com. We're also on Utreon and on Odyssey. So those are great places to check us out, support those, those platforms as well. Um, and thanks to all of you who uh, like and support the show, who are uh, paid subscribers, who buy merch, uh, who sign up at unsafespace.com. All that stuff really helps us out. So uh, I wanted to thank you and welcome to the people in chat tonight. So I'm gonna try Tonight, I'm going to try and pay attention to chat a little bit. It's not super active right now, but in the past, I've been kind of ignoring it. And I'm going to try and do a better job of paying attention to chat a little bit. So let's let's get started. Um, I can't help but start with a news story because uh, this just, you know, sometimes when they, when they say the, they say the quiet part out loud, and you just kind of wonder, uh, am I the only one that noticed that? I know I'm not the only one that noticed this, but uh, let's go to, I think it's the afternoon in New Zealand. So we might have some New Zealanders uh, who could theoretically be watching this live. Um, and uh, <sighs> Jacinda Arden, she is the prime minister of New Zealand. And at a press conference, I guess this was today or yesterday, whatever, I don't know. Um, I'm just gonna play for you what she said because I don't think I could do it justice. I think we should let her speak for herself. It is truly amazing. Uh, let's see here. There she is. And let's see if we can get this going the most up-to-date information daily. You can trust us as a source of that information. Uh, you can also trust the Director General of Health and the Ministry of Health. For that information, do feel free to visit at any time to clarify any rumour you may hear, covid19.govt.nz. Otherwise, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. We will provide information free. We can pause there. She repeats that a couple times or that, that kind of a thought. But for those of you who missed it, what she said was, we will continue to be your single source of truth. She goes on to say that if you hear anything else that contradicts what they're saying, any rumors or anything else, dismiss it, dismiss it. They are your single source of truth. Um, oops, I just played her again. Uh, <laughs> look, the level of subtlety that these people use is usually proportionate to their respect for you. So if they are worried that you might catch on or push back um, or anything like that, they, they're more likely to try and hide it or be subtle or use euphemisms or whatever. When they no longer feel like you're a threat, 
like when they feel like they can just get away with it, that's when they stop hiding their evil. They just say it. And she just said it. She just said it. We're your single source of truth. Um, it reminds me of a Stalin quote. And, and the reason it's the Stalin is important is because he knew he had the power. He could just say it. What the hell were they going to do? He was a dictator. He was in charge. And what he said was, ideas are more powerful than guns. We would not let our enemies have ideas. Why should we, or sorry, we would not let our enemies have guns. Why should we let them have ideas? Sorry, I butchered that. I, I uh, stole the thunder from him. But yeah, he look, he was like, he, he said that very blatantly. And this New Zealander reminds me of Stalin in, in her, <laughs> in her words. I mean, and I know, I know she's probably at least saying, maybe even thinking that she's doing it for her own good uh, or everyone else's own good. But, uh, and I know that a lot of people, you know, we're going to look at this and everyone, I think everyone watching this show is going to have the same, at least visceral reaction, which is this is wrong. Uh, and that's good. Uh, it is wrong. It's horrible. I do think it's nevertheless important to articulate why it helps us clarify our thoughts. So I'm going to, because I wanted to articulate why for myself, because it just, made me want to throw up or throw something at my computer. And I don't even live in New Zealand. Uh, I'm just, this is me uh, living vicariously through Marie Buskey, worried about her, um, who was one of our New Zealand community members. So there's two main reasons. Let's just talk about one, this is immoral. This is, this is wrong for a moral reason. And let's just articulate what the moral reason is to be really clear. Aside from the authoritarian stuff, let's just get right down to, to kind of ethics. Um, you know, skip the politics. Your mind is your primary source of survival. It's your primary means of survival. Uh, humans, you know, you don't have claws. You don't have, uh, you know, you can't run fast. We're not super big. We're kind of vulnerable to the elements. We kind of suck, except, except... We have this amazing brain that can manipulate the environment around us, and it's our rational mind that's our means of survival. That's how we survive. And this, from Jacinda, is literally an, an instruction to turn your brain off. She's literally telling you, we will think for you. Stop using your means of survival. Use ours for you. Your survival should rely on us. That's what she's saying. And to me, to say this and and even to believe it requires this, uh, I think it requires a, a hatred and disrespect for humanity that's on par with some of the worst mass murdering dictators uh, in history. Um, it's I, I don't I won't say it is worse than just being a mass murdering, like killing people outright because obviously that's that's worse. But it's almost it's almost. It's almost worse because when you have someone who's just killing you outright, they're they're at least honest. They're just like, I hate you. I would like to kill you. You know you need to fight back and like it becomes might makes right. Maybe you win, at least have a chance of winning. This is an attempt. What she's doing is an attempt to undermine your very means of survival. And once you've done that to people, once you've undermined their means of survival, once they are relying on you to think for them, you're free to enslave them, 
you're free to manipulate them into suicide if you want. Just like anything, you can kill them at that point if you want to, or you can do worse because you've you have made their existence subordinate to you. It's just it's absolutely vile. Um, and you know, and re regardless of what her intentions are or what she says they are, remember that you know the worst dictators in history all, always did it behind you know they always hid behind good intentions. It was always for a good reason, right? So. Um, what a mess. What a mess. So morally, it's wrong. I also just want to point out what happens kind of on a practical level when you do this kind of thing in in a country. Um, oh, to answer you, Vibrant Goo, who's in chat, who just joined, I'm talking about Jacinda Arden. We just played a, a clip of her, so you should go back and watch it if you hadn't. Uh, the reason that this is like practically, let's just talk about the practical implications and consequences of this kind of thing. So um, this is, you know, you hear about echo chambers being a problem, your Facebook echo chamber, or if you only follow like-minded people on Twitter, you're kind of in an echo chamber. This is the concept of an echo chamber taken to the, the extreme. And the analogy that I was thinking about for this, because I, I think it's appropriately disgusting, it's an appropriately disgusting analogy, is uh, the fatal genetic diseases that occur when you have incest. I, I think this is this is a form of, she's pushing intellectual incest, is what I'm gonna call this. Um, you know, one of the most famous historical cases of uh, incestual problems genetically is, is monarchies in Europe. Charles II of Spain in the late 17th century, uh, he was called the Bewitched. He was one of the, one of the famous cases here. Um, he was the product of an uncle and a niece, but there had been so much inbreeding in the royals prior to that, that he shared more DNA than he would have if his if it was a if he was the product of a brother and a sister. He was like that bad, right? It's pretty disgusting, right? So that's how much DNA he had shared, and he was kind of this broken, uh, <laughs> sorry excuse for a human. I mean, it was really sad. I mean, I guess you could feel bad for him. He had violent convulsions, he had hallucinations, he was just non-functional. Um, he couldn't close his mouth properly because his jaw was out, like extended, and he had like a swollen, like an engorged tongue in this malformed jaw. So eating and talking were almost impossible for him. He couldn't talk until he was four years old. He couldn't um, walk until he was eight. He had spontaneous and uncontrollable diarrhea and vomiting. I mean, what a life. Like what a, what a clusterfuck of a human being. Um, you get from this genetic inbreeding. And I look at this, uh, the, reason I, the reason I like that analogy, because it's disgusting, is I think that's exactly what happens in the ecosystem idea of ideas when you do something. When you set up this, this echo chamber where you get resonant frequencies that are all, the, like all harmonics, they're all the same, it's all the same thing being bounced back and forth in this echo chamber. And even small errors in, in that environment, even small errors kind of propagate and compound until you get like truly fatal intellectual results. Um, and you know, I, I think this is an attempt to turn New Zealand into like the, the, the intellectual status of New Zealanders, assuming that this goes on, let's say this is the beginning of something that happens for a couple generations, right? It's an attempt to turn the, the, the intellectual status of New Zealanders into basically the, the Charles II uh, intellectually, right? You'll get, you know, I was just trying to think about how this analogy would work. 
you'd get a populace that's like seized by uncontrollable moments of mass internal conflict, which I think would happen if this kind of continues. And you do see a lot of unrest when, um, when you have people laid on the law like that, right? Um, you get mass hallucination, which makes them, which, which basically looks like, and the populace looks like believing bad or stupid ideas. Like it's why you get, you know, when you have like, uh, weird religious populations that believe in, or, you know, aliens are coming tomorrow or whatever, they make really bad choices because they have these, you know, hallucinations and you get to be, this population becomes intellectually just dysfunctional. They won't be able to function just like he couldn't walk and talk. They won't be able to function. They'll lose self-sufficiency. Um, and they basically become these kind of useless piles of flesh that the state can use for cannon fodder or as a tax farm or whatever. And um, I don't know, that that's how I was thinking of the analogy. And it just, it sickens me. And I know there are some people, not, not too many that watch this show or, or watch anything on this channel, um, but there are some people who say, well, it's not so bad being an animal on a tax farm, uh, you know, they treat me well, I'm going to do my thing and, and I, it's fine. Uh, I'm not going to be upset about being a sheep. You got to remember that, um, you got to remember that when you are made a sheep, what they're doing to turn you into a sheep is taking away what makes you human. What they're doing to turn you into a, a tax farm animal is is taking away your humanity. They're taking away that which makes you human, which is your uh, <laughs> your rational mind, which she's doing explicitly. Don't rely on it. Don't use it. Um, and eventually you actually become less, they want to manage humans. They don't actually want to manage sheep. So the less human people become over time, the less uh, useful they are to the state, which eventually they'll just, they they do get used for cannon fodder or for experiments or for being they just get murdered or whatever. So the idea that just because you're on a tax farm you'll always be a valuable piece of livestock is false. You will not always be a valuable piece of livestock. So anyway, I, this whole thing just reminded me of the importance of avoiding building an intellectual echo chamber. Um, it's just it's just a mess. Um, by the way, people in chat are talking about how much DNA we share with chimps and blah blah blah. Yeah, when I say that there's a lot of DNA shared, a lot is a relatively small amount. We're talking, you know, small percentages here. Uh, but you can't you can't share too much DNA. I really, aside from the moral issues, guys, please don't go procreate with people you're related to. It's not a good idea. Um, anyway, so this this reminded me of the importance of, of avoiding echo chambers, and I wanted to call someone out who. Uh, commented on a couple shows recently about this and I and I liked I liked what he had to say so uh he had a couple analogies here uh, his name is Richard I don't want to say his last name because I don't know that he wants it said um but he says um he's talking about how I, at one point I was talking about watching and listening and reading to material that challenges your kind of gut reaction and your um what you already think and, and trying to digest it and test your own understanding. And he likened that to a live fire exercise, which if you've never done, uh, I mean, most people who shoot do live fire exercises, but you know, there's a difference between understanding intellectually how to, how to deal with the situation and actually practicing something much closer to it. It's, you know, it's different to 
dry firing at home is different than firing on the range, which is different than firing on the range under simulated stress, which is different than doing uh, like simunitions force on force training, which is different than I assume, although I've never been involved in this actual gunfights. I've never been in one, but I assume uh, the simunitions I have done is not the same, <laughs> right? So uh, similarly, it's kind of he 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 likens it to live fire exercises, which I think is a is a good analogy. Um, and the other thing he says is, I I worked in a QA for a number of years in a car manufacturing plant. I'm not going to say the the brand. And we had our measuring tools calibrated regularly to be sure that they will they were still still accurate. The same principle applies to our thinking. It's basic maintenance and it allows for real time error correction. I love both of those analogies. I think they're awesome. Um, you know, as I've talked about before, you know, I've talked about this concept hierarchy. Uh, I've talked about reason being the the method where you buy you, you're policing that hierarchy. Uh, and reason is just, again, just this process of non-contradictory identification. That's really all it is. Um, and these analogies to me really emphasize the importance of keeping your reasoning faculties in fighting shape, right? Actually keeping them sharp. And they get dull if you're just in an echo chamber. Uh, and you have no no ideas to criticize because either, either all you're only hearing stuff that you uh, already believe. Um, and it's also important to stress test your model, your mental model, that that conceptual hierarchy. So I love those analogies. I wanted to call him out for that. Thank you, Richard. Um, I will say, and I've said this before, uh, one of the things I appreciated about uh, Malice, Michael Malice's Anarchist Handbook which I have here, which I don't think many people read for book club. I understand you're not anarchists. So you figure you don't need to read it. Um, there are, there are essays by some communists in there that, um, you know, obviously I don't agree with their conclusions. I, I think I can see where their errors are, but nevertheless make some really interesting and compelling points and arguments. And I wouldn't see those arguments or understand them or even understand their point of view if I hadn't read them. Uh, Pierre Joseph uh, Proudhon, I guess is how you pronounce it, is one of the guys. Uh, Josiah Warren, Peter Kropotkin, I don't know these commies, uh, and Emma Goldman, all commies that are in this book, actually wrote interesting things worth reading. Um, and I'm not saying you're going to come out uh, wearing a Che Guevara shirt. You probably, hopefully, are able to identify the, the flaws in their thinking, but still interesting reading and keeps your mind sharp. So, Thank you. Captain Z says there are four lights. Exactly. Therese says it's sad that Carter has to tell people that. Yeah, I know. It's, sometimes it's sad. But you got to tell people. Sometimes you think that stuff is common knowledge, and it's not. And a lot of times it's not. Like, I didn't know things, and then I found out later, and I forget that I didn't know them at one point. So that's just that's how it goes. So this leads us to the definition that I want to talk about tonight. It's going to be kind of quick because I have something else related to this that I want to want to talk about. But I want to look at the definition of uh, emotion, and there's a reason for this, which I'll get to. But let's just look at. We'll start with the Oxford English Dictionary. We're looking at three uh, A and three B are the two definitions that really matter. The rest of them are kind of obsolete and weird definitions. Three A and B. This is the word emotion. Um, now, by the way, emotion, this is a particularly difficult concept, or there's some challenges to this concept, because uh, feeling itself 
is basically just perceptual. It's not a concept. Like feeling is perceptual. It's it's all the way down at the the, the level of a uh, perception. Right? So it's extremely concrete. Like defining, you, you know, the best way to define anger is to, it's it's to say to someone it's that feeling you get when and then cite examples of what anger is. Right. So emotions are emotion might might be kind of a tough thing to define, but let's look at these two definitions and see if we can put something together that matches remember we have the um remember we have the model we're trying to use where we we plug a concept into underneath a parent so it's a it's a member of this category and it's differentiated from its siblings by this so let's see if we can do that with emotion looking at these two oxford english dictionary definitions uh, so the first one is originally, uh, sorry, I didn't need to read that part, an agitation of mind in excited mental state. Uh, and then subsequently, any strong mental or instinctive feeling as pleasure, grief, hope, fear, etc., deriving especially from one's circumstances, mood, or relationship with others. Now, if you'll notice, this is actually not, it's almost circular. It's tough because they're using words like mood, and then they're using examples of emotion to define emotion. It's, it's a little bit tough right because because this is so close to the perceptual level if we go down to here it's it's uh as a mass noun strong feelings passion or more generally instinctive feeling as distinguished from reasoning or knowledge so i think if we look at these two we might be able to do a better job than what i'm about to do but let's just try i'll, I'll try and do a uh, a cursory we'll try and when categorize this i would say probably the parent here is uh, emotions probably some category of uh, a psychological state. There's like this class of psychological states you can have. Emotions are a type of the psychological state. Uh, and emotions are distinct from their siblings uh, in that uh, they're not consciously deduced or concluded, but rather they're like instinctual and reactive, right? They, they exist apart from de the deliberate reasoning process. They're not necessarily in contrast with your reasoning process. They could, but they could be, but they kind of exist separate. You don't think, you don't conclude, right? You don't do a math problem and conclude I'm sad, right? It's, it's an emotional state that happens kind of apart from that cognitive process. So, okay. So let's say that we've got that. And by, by the way, note that um, the, Emotional function plays no role in policing your hierarchy. Emotions do not come into, they're not, they're not the cop. They're not the intellectual cop that can tell you whether or not you have concepts that are internally contradictory or not, and whether they correspond to reality. They can't do that for you. They can't do that because they exist apart from reason. They're apart from that, that mental police that you need to be running. I don't like police as the analogy. Maybe I should switch. But whatever, you're, you're running that that mental check to make sure your your concept hierarchy is integrated and consistent with reality. Emotions can't help you there because they are in a category separate from the cognitive function that actually does that, right? So this brings us to the topic I want to talk about today, which is going to be a little bit weird. And I realize we're only in the third episode, so it's hard to say weird because we don't have a baseline. But it feels weird to me because it's a little bit personal. I mean, not entirely, but a little bit. I 
I struggled coming up with what to talk to, to talk about today. And I've been struggling to think clearly for the past couple weeks for reasons that I'll get into in a minute. Um, but I wanted to share that because I'm probably not the only one that struggles with this at times. And one of the things this show is about is thinking clearly. And we've spent a lot of time so far in the first two episodes just talking about kind of the intellectual level stuff. Here's how concepts relate. Here's what we're trying to do. All that's great. Um, but there's another aspect of thinking clearly that I, that I think is important. And it's an aspect that I've been struggling with, which is why I'm bringing it up. Um, so here's the issue. We've been talking about all this stuff how to think clearly, all that. But we have to remember, um, thinking is not something that happens outside of reality, right? It's not a non-physical process. It is connected to something physical. And that physical thing is your brain, right? There's about three pounds of fatty tissue in your head, uh, a little bit less for some of you on the left. Um, and that is that fatty tissue is bathed in a bunch of chemicals that interact with each other in pretty complex ways that we don't really understand. We understand maybe a little bit, but not not much. And that brain of yours is an organ, just like your lungs or your hearts. It doesn't exist outside of reality. So it's very much affected by the concrete reality of the chemicals that are in it and what's going on. Um, and as we just talked about with emotions, it doesn't just perform the reasoning function. It also feels, it's also responsible for our emotions. There's a limbic system with your amygdala and everything else. That's responsible for your emotions. Obviously there's other things too. It does visual processing and controls your heart rate and everything else. But um, for, for the sake of this discussion, the thing to focus on is the brain also does emotions. Um, and that's important because the your emotional state I, I came up with at least three ways that your emotional state relates to clear thinking. Um, and I'm going to talk about them a little bit. So the three that I came up with are motivation, conscious valid input to process, and efficacy and accuracy. And I'll, let me just talk about them for a moment. So first of all, your your emotions are actually the starting point for thinking. They are the motivation to think. If you don't have emotions, you actually can't achieve anything. There's no reason to do anything. Have you ever seen anyone who's just like totally numb to the world and kind of checked out and they've gotten so numb to the world, they're like, maybe they started depressed and they just kind of, kind of numb. They don't do anything. They don't care about anything anymore. They have a hard time brushing their teeth and getting out of bed and putting on their pants in the morning, they don't have the motivation to do anything. And thinking starts with motivation. You need to have a motivation to actually do anything. So in that respect, mo emotions actually aren't at odds with thinking in, in this particular respect. They're necessary just to get started. If you're unmotivated to achieve or do anything, if you don't care, for example, if you don't, if you're unmotivated to care about the fate of America, why would you fight for it? Why would you do anything? If you don't feel anything for it, then you don't want to do anything. You're not going to think about the problem because you don't care, right? So emotions obviously affect your motivation. Um, to, to motivation to think. 
the the second point, uh, the second way in which emotions relate to to clear thinking is they can be conscious, valid inputs to certain decision-making processes, right? So a lot of decisions that you need to make in life take your emotions into account because the emotions are part of what you want to achieve, right? The obvious example maybe would be marriage, right? You wouldn't get married to someone who is like, well, she ticks all these boxes off. I don't really like her, but she she, she meets all the re requirements I have for a spouse. That would be dumb because part of being married is achieving a particular desired emotional state in the long term. Like that's part of why you're getting married. You know, maybe not in ancient times, maybe it was just a business transaction, but nowadays it is. Career is another example, right? Hopefully you wouldn't just discount your emotions if you found you got offered a job that was, you know, really good pay. Um, it was in the industry you wanted, but you know, you interviewed there a few times and you were like, I would hate working in there. I hate these people. I would like, this would be hell on earth to have to go to this job every day. I wouldn't like it. Hopefully you would factor that emotion into that decision. So there are those kind of decisions that, that matter where your emotions actually matter because emotions are an end in sometimes, sometimes for humans, like they are, we want a particular thing. Um, but the thing to remember about emotions is they do give you valid information about reality, but it's not about the external world. They only give you valid information about your internal state. They're ultimately introspective. They can only tell you what you feel, which is important in many cases, but they can't tell you anything about the external world, right? So that doesn't mean that you have to not take them into account sometimes. Like I've talked about uh, this book, Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker before, um, where he talks about, you know, using your intuition, using your intuition in, in circumstances where your life may be in danger and there's a time limit, it's kind of dire. Um, so, you know, for example, you're walking down the street and there's a guy coming towards you and it's, it's at night and you feel weird about it. You feel like oh, he might be a predator. Like he feels weird. Something's wrong, right? You can certainly act on that by crossing the street and, or getting at, getting yourself out of that situation. Your emotions aren't telling you anything about him. Really. They're telling you something about your internal state that may or may not relate to reality. But it doesn't mean that your emotions are an argument. You can't claim that you have knowledge about that guy. You can't say, I know he was a predator. You can say, I felt it and I took the conservative route just in case and crossed the street or whatever. But you can't, you can't go to the police and say, that guy's a predator, I know it. Because you don't. You don't actually know anything about the external world. So that's that second category where emotions play into reasoning, which is when they, when they, have, a, they have a role to play. And the third kind of most frustrating category here is uh, our way in which emotions affect our clear thinking is they do affect how well we apply reason when we try to apply reason. Um, psychologists call it the judgment and decision-making process. They could help us make better decisions. They could hinder us and have us make worse decisions, more irrational decisions. Unfortunately, most of the time, we have no idea which they're doing. We don't really know. So um, it's a challenge, and we all strive to be more rational when, with our decision-making. And that usually means trying to figure out how to be objective and minimize the impact of those because we don't know whether they're helping us or hurting us because um, they're not rational. They're just feelings that are there.
And, you know, um, someone said, I dance for pennies, says intuition, your gut feel, et cetera, is your unconscious informing your conscious. That's exactly correct. And sometimes your unconscious is wrong, right? And your un the thing about your unconscious is you can't, you can't check it rationally like you do your your conscious decisions and you've got that concept hierarchy. You can't kind of, you don't like query it, right? It, it all happens kind of outside of your control. Your unconscious makes some summation of the world and gives you an answer, which is usually a feeling, right? And sometimes that answer is valid. Um, and, and that unconscious is often programmed by your own experience. So if someone who's used to walking around uh, in inner city at night for 20 years might have a much better uh, intuition about who's a threat and who's not a threat than someone who's never been to the city before. Um, so anyway, I want to get back to the, the weirdness of the show. The, I wanted to talk about this today because um, I've had, like I said, I've had difficulty thinking clearly, especially in this past week. Um, and I want to talk about a few reasons why. And to do that, I got to get into chemistry a little bit because there are chemical reasons why. Um, so let's talk about motivation for a second. Uh, by the way, I stuff. I think this stuff is fascinating. So I hope that you guys do too. I think the, the whole world of neuroscience is fascinating. And I'm a layman. I'm not a neuroscientist. So I'm. I'm I've read some stuff. I'm trying to put it in in layman's terms here. So. Let's talk about dopamine. So, um, you know, the, the mechanisms by which dopamine affects humans and our thinking process and our feelings is much more complex than, than pop culture would have you believe. It's, I know a lot of people will think of it, oh, it's the reward neurotransmitter or you get a dopamine hit from, you know, doing Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Um, there's just a few things to, to remember. It's it's way, way more complex than that. And there's a few things to remember in particular. One is dopamine is released in anticipation of a, re a reward, not from the reward itself. You don't get a dopamine hit from seeing the Instagram post that you want. You get a dopamine hit from, from anticipating seeing an Instagram post that you like. That's when it comes. Um, also, the particular neural pathways, where the dopamine is going, which part of your brains it's going to and from, where it's showing up, matter a great deal in terms of what effect that dopamine is having on your system. Um, and also, the brain can adapt. So the brain can uh, activate more or fewer dopamine receptors to try to pull some dopamine out or, or let more dopamine stay in there. And so just like with drugs or whatever, you can build up a tolerance if you're bathed in dopamine too often. And parts of your brain are bathed in dopamine too often, your brain might um, start activating uh, some more dopamine receptors to suck that up. Uh, so all those things, it's, it's complex. All those things are important to, to know. Um, so it can be involved in kind of negative, the things that we think of as negative, like it can be involved in your social media addiction if you have one, right? And preventing you from doing other things or it can be involved and is involved in motivating you to achieve a goal. Dopamine's required. And so um, there's there's something called a, a mesolimbic pathway. I'm gonna try not to use too many fancy words. Um, but there's a, there's a neuronal circuit that goes from the middle of your brain, I can't, I can't touch the middle of my brain, I don't know what my hands are doing, to the outside of your brain, the cerebral cortex, the outermost region. Um, 
And there's a group of neurons called the ventral tegmental area, okay? And that that is one of the sections that generates dopamine. And when that, that part of your brain generates dopamine, and then it projects it from the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, it, it projects it out to the nucleus accumbens, okay? Which is in other limbic regions as well in your brain. Um, limbic regions are the ones that process emotions. Um, now, modern science isn't sure exactly how this works, but when that dopamine pathway from the VTA to the accumbens, the nucleus accumbens, when that dopamine pathway is uh, is active, that's when your feelings of motivation happen. Like it's involved in your feelings of motivation or your lack of motivation. That's the pathway that matters. It's a dopamine pathway and it helps you to be more motivated or less motivated. And most studies on this are done with animals. Um, but just one that's kind of helps you think about what this means, uh, for behavior. Uh, the university of Connecticut did a study, for example, where, um, animals were given a choice between a low value reward that requires very little effort. So, uh, you know, you just, or whatever, no effort or a value reward that required a lot more effort. You got to jump through, through some hoops or do whatever to get this higher, much higher value reward. Animals with less dopamine, they artificially control dopamine levels in these animals. Animals with less dopamine were more likely to go for the less work, less reward. They just went for the easy thing, the low hanging fruit, so to speak. More dopamine, they would go for the harder work, bigger reward. Um, so that's, we do know that about dopamine. We also know that exercise affects, uh, striatal dopamine with the dopamine in the striatum, which is where the nucleus accumbens is. Um, and I, I looked at this paper, I read this paper from uh, 2019 in the American Chemical Society, they have a thing called Chemical Neuroscience Journal or whatever. Um, and, you know, they looked at specifically at exercise and motivation. And they said, look, aerobic exercise promotes dopamine levels in the nucleus accumbens, right? So exercise and th this is all you you hear this stuff you hear people say well exercise helps you do this and it makes you feel better and blah 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 i just want you to understand like it really does and there's a reason why it does exercise helps you to have more motivation it does and if you don't guess what you have a harder time doing being motivated so um why have I been struggling in particular this past week? Uh, well, I happen to be going through a medical issue. I have severe nerve pain right now in my, uh, actually I have a, I have a nerve that's under pressure from a hemorrhage and it's like pinching and it's, it's pretty severe. Um, I can't like this actually sitting in this chair is probably one of the most comfortable things I can do, although I'm hopped up on pain meds. Um, I can't walk. I can't lift anything. I can't really move much at all. Um, I kind of have to sit around like a sack of potatoes. There's not much that I can do. So I haven't exercised in a couple weeks at all. I'm do. I'm literally like a. I'm doing nothing. I'm like a couch potato. On top of all that, I'm on a bunch of muscle relaxers, which make me drowsy and confused and all this other stuff. Right. Um, so those are my medical conditions. My, uh, on top of all this, 
I've screwed myself over a little bit more. Just being honest, this is this is you know this is in my control, and I haven't done a good job of controlling it. I function best on a carnivore and low carb diet, but I've been eating crap. I've been eating carbs, refined sugars, so I get insulin spikes, which crash me. Um, and just because I want to make it worse, apparently, uh, muscle relaxers make me really drowsy. I can't stay awake, so I take a bunch of caffeine to counteract the muscle relaxer, which makes me anxious and restless, but also kind of weirdly drowsy and confused. So all this stuff affects my motivation and my ability to think clearly. And the reason I'm saying all this is um, I'm giving myself, when I sat down to think about what to talk about on this program today, um, a few days ago, I was like, I was struggling with all this. I'm like, I can't think clearly. I'm tired. I'm like, I'm like, I was just struggling with all this stuff. And I realized, you know, other people struggle with this stuff. And if we're going to talk about thinking clearly, we, we don't, we can't just talk about the laws of logic and induction and deduction and, um, uh, making sure, uh, you're, you're, concept hierarchy comports with reality, like all that's important and it's, it's, it's critical, but we also have to make sure your engine is functioning properly, that your, your brain is functioning properly. Um, and so I'm going to give you the advice that I want to hear myself, which is exercise, eat well, avoid carbs and refined sugars as much as you can avoid alcohol and caffeine and other stuff like that. All of that affects your mental acuity. All of it does. It affects mine. Uh, and by the way, I happen to have some excuses right now because of my medical issue, but certainly there have been times in my life when I was a couch potato and ate a bunch of crap and I had no reason. I just did it, right? Like certainly I've been, been times in my life where I couldn't point to some medical problem and drugs that were causing it. It was just, I'm being a lazy ass, right? And it's hard to get out of that cycle. Um, it's hard to be motivated. It's hard to be productive. And it's actually harder to think clearly when you're in that cycle. So um, this, by the way, this all reminds me of uh, Ayn Rand used to talk about humans having this fundamental choice when, when she tried to distill down kind of almost what free will was like, what is, how does it manifest? Like, what is our fundamental choice cognitively? And what she thought and this seems reasonable. I mean, I don't, I don't have a better idea for it. Uh, what she thought was that um, fundamentally our choice is think or not. We get confronted with something, a thought passes in our mind, right? Like an idea or a contradiction or something to observe. Something hits us and we have to make a choice. Do I think more deeply about this or do I push it away and let it go? Um, and when you're not in a good emotional state, um, it makes it harder to choose think, right? It makes it harder to choose think. All right. Uh, before I move on, I'm just going to, I want to take a moment. I'm going to look in chat because I know there's stuff going on and I'm trying to be better about chat. Oh, music. Someone said when I'm physically down, the right music can help. Yeah, music can definitely help. Um, someone else mentioned uh, the 12-hour diet. 
I don't know. I've never heard of something called the 12-hour diet, but I assume you're talking about intermittent fasting. Um, that can that can also help. Um, Vibrant Goose says, <laughs> funny name. Vibrant Goose says, keto dramatically reduced my migraines and headaches. Diet can really affect you. Absolutely. Um, YouTube says, Carter's on the way to pudding brain. I'm already there, buddy. I'm already pudding brained. Um, yeah. So... Okay, so that's that's motivation. That's how your emotions uh, can affect motivation and how chemicals affect your motivation, which affects your thinking clearly. Um, so I said that there were three ways. I'm gonna skip over the middle one, but I'm gonna pull up the three ways again. So how emotions relate to clear thinking. Uh, ooh, I can point to this thing, that's cool. Check that out. Number one, motivation. I talked about that. I'm going to skip this one, which was emotions can be conscious, valid inputs to a decision. I'm going to skip over that for now. Um, but I'm going to talk about the last one, efficacy and accuracy. Uh, because this I also find pretty fascinating, and I think it's important to, to know. Uh, it's important here because self-awareness is is critically important to us you're born into this complex machine not done being developed by the way your brain doesn't develop until you're in your mid-20s uh earlier if you're i think it's like 24 or so if you're female 26 or so if you're a male so um i don't know what happens if you're a uh if you identify as a dragon um but anyway you're you know you're, you're born into this machine it's it's still in development, but it's extremely complex. You could spend your entire life trying to study how the human body works or just the brain, and you barely scratch the surface. But it does behoove you to understand the basic kind of mechanics of how your machine works, because as I mentioned before, your reasoning mind is your primary means of survival, right? Your brain, your brain, by the way, consumes about 20% of your calories. So it's three pounds of some fatty gray tissue, three pounds. Right, I think most people uh, weigh more than 15 pounds, right? So, which is what you know, three pounds would be 20% of 15 pounds, right? Like most people weigh more than 15 pounds. So, this tiny part of you consumes a hugely disproportionate amount of calories. It didn't evolve for no reason, um, and it it behooves us to understand a little bit about it. So, one of the things to understand is what I just talked about, which is how those eating, exercise, that kind of stuff affects your mental capacity and motivation. Um, now I want to talk about how your emotions impact your judgment and decision-making process is how psychologists refer to it. And there's, I'll, pull, I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but I'm going to go over... I, I read this really excellent review of the current state of research here by uh, someone named Dr. Jennifer Lerner and some co-authors. Uh, she's at Harvard. It was published in 2015, so I guess there's six years now of stuff that she didn't do, but it was republished in the 2015 edition of Annual Review of Psychology. And she perused the literature specifically looking at this question of emotions and um, judgment and decision-making, the judgment and decision-making process. And I think this is important to understand because uh, what I'll get to at the end a little bit, I'll explain, you'll know by the end why it's important to understand, but um, 
I'm just going to say at the outset, and it's important to understand because uh, awareness helps. We'll just put it that way. So she she distilled this down to eight themes. I'm going to gloss over some and go a little more into others, but it's not. it won't be too long. Um, and, and again, these are themes that emerged from looking at decades worth of research here uh, and kind of the current state of, of the science. Um, the first theme was that integral emotions influence decision-making. And so integral emotions are emotions that are directly related to the topic. That's probably very obvious. Um, so uh, it does this in a couple ways. Um, there's the biased emotion. So, and that's the very obvious one, right? Where like, if you're afraid to fly, for example, uh, you're more likely to choose driving, even though driving is more likely to, you're more likely to get into an accident and die driving than you are flying. Flying's technically, you know, statistically safer. You're gonna choose driving, all things being equal, because uh, you have a fear of flying for whatever reason, right? And that's that's an emotion, your fear, that fear is gonna drive you. That's kind of obvious. The other, um, the other way in which, uh, integral emotions affect this is they they can um, they can be emotional they can serve as guides to perceived risk um, I always like studies where like they have people that have some weird brain issue so they there's studies where they people have had an injury to the ventral medial prefrontal cortex which is a key area of the brain for integrating emotion and cognition okay? Um, and studies found that, uh, when that area is injured, neurological impairments there reduce the patient's ability to a feel emotion and B, uh, it reduces the optimality of their decisions more than just the cognitive impairment would. So for example, um, people that have this will select like riskier financial options in, in even like even in games with real money, they'll like bankrupt themselves by being riskier and riskier because they don't have a good risk analysis. Um, because they because they're they understand it cognitively, but emotionally they're having a hard time. They don't have that emotional barrier that guides their decision making. So that's one thing that we know about what emotions do. Second theme is that even incidental emotions influence decision making. Incidental emotions are ones that are unrelated to the thing that you're supposed to be evaluating, right? So um, if you read an unrelated newspaper article that affects your mood, right? Maybe puts you in a good mood or a bad mood, right? That affects how you um, make judgments after that about something completely unrelated. So uh, they, for example, they had people estimate uh, the frequencies of fatalities for potential causes of death, like heart disease or whatever. And if they read something positive, unrelated to heart disease before that, they would estimate on the low end. And if they read something negative, unrelated to heart disease, they would estimate something on the high end. There are lots of fatalities. Um, ambient weather influences people's self-reported life satisfaction, right? So um, incidental emotions have an effect. Uh, another thing that she she talked about that's the in the in the kind of modern state of how emotions affect decision making is in the past, we kind of thought about it as like positive and negative emotions, and it turns out um, there's lots of there's several different dimensions to emotions, and there's something called the appraisal tendency framework that can be applied. I'm not going to get into it because it's too technical, but I'm saying it because I'm going to put the link, like I said, and if you want to read it, it's super fascinating. Um, 
but these uh, these dimensions are things like certainty, pleasantness, attentional activity, anticipated effort, individual control, and the other's responsibility. And like any emotion can be kind of mapped into that appraisal of that emotion. And it's that, it's how that emotion is mapped in there that actually makes a difference in your decision making. So the fourth theme that she noticed was if you take that framework, what you notice is that um, your different emotions lead to different kind of cognitive appraisals. So it'll influence your risk perception. Um, it'll influence, for, for example, like attribution. So you might feel more that someone else is more responsible for something or you are, that will change how you make judgments that will affect your quote, rational judgment process, um, whether you feel someone else is responsible or you are. Um, the fifth theme she noticed was that emotions shape decisions via depth of thought. So, um, this is kind of interesting, right? You can think more or less deeply about things, right? You could ruminate on something all day long if you wanted and never make a decision, or you could you know, make a decision really quickly. People in a positive uh, affective state are more influenced by heuristic clues like expertise, attractiveness, likability of the source, right? So if you're in a more positive emotional state, you're more likely to commit um, what we would say like the fallacy of uh, the genetic fallacy, right? oh, this person's attractive and likable, so I like what they're saying, right? However, if you're in a negative, uh, too, too much of a negative affective state, um, this can lead to anchoring or kind of other mistakes. Right? So anchoring is where you focus too much on the first piece of information you heard. Um, and there's more work to be done there, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So that's how emo emotions also affect the depth of your thought. Um, they also shape your decisions through a process called goal activation. And this is basically kind of also obvious, I think, uh, your emotions give you a tendency to act towards a specific goal or not. So um, if you're angry, you might have a tendency to want to fight, obviously. If you're, you're anxious, you might have a tendency to want to reduce uncertainty. If you're sad, you might want to have a tendency to change your circumstances. And that tendency will affect how you make judgments about things. So you'll be more or less rational. Um, by the way, Ross Tra Travatera says there's nothing wrong with heuristics. No, um, there's often not nothing, anything wrong with heuristics. So it's not necessarily bad. Um, it can be irrational. It can actually be a good shortcut. It just depends. Um, but it does have an have an effect. So the seventh um, the seventh theme she noticed was uh, emotions influence interpersonal decision making, which I think is also kind of obvious. Sometimes psychologists like do all this work and, and quantify all these things. And then like the result is something that you're like, yeah, duh. Um, this is one of those, right? Uh, they help influence an individual's, uh, or they help you understand when individuals, someone else's intentions are in their beliefs. Obviously they incentivize you, uh, to, um, or they incentivize signaling emotions can incentivize someone to act a certain way or not right? We know that. Um, and they, they can evoke other emotions. They can be used to evoke emotions in other people that we kind of know. I don't have to go into that one. And the final theme, which I think is the one that I think is most important for this discussion, uh, is, so we've talked about, these are things that, you know, how emotions can affect decision-making and judgment and that kind of stuff. The final theme she noticed from the research is that unwanted effects of emotion on decision-making 
can be reduced under certain circumstances. And that's good. That's what we want. We want to know, gee, how do we minimize the impact of our emotions on our decision making? I care about that. I don't know if you do, but you should, right? It's important. Some of these answers, some of the ways are obvious. Some of them are less obvious. One thing that affects your, um, one way you can reduce the effects of emotion on your decision-making is time. Even if you wait, let's say you have a fight with someone or you're pissed off about something, even if it's unrelated and incidental emotion, you wait 10 or 15 minutes, you'll probably return to emotional baseline. It doesn't always help, but often it does. This is why sleeping on it is a good idea. You write that email, maybe sleep on it. If you're really pissed off while you're writing that email, maybe maybe sleep on it and see if you still tomorrow want to send that email. Um, the problem there is waiting is kind of at odds with the action bias that a lot of emotions have. So like if you're angry, you kind of have an urgency and want to act. Waiting feels really, really difficult sometimes. So that's a problem with it. But if you can get over that, time delay is helpful. Um, one thing to point out here is suppressing your emotions doesn't actually work. In fact, it can lead to the opposite. So saying I'm worried that my emotional response here is affecting my judgment and I'm going to try and make sure I suppress it so that I can judge more clearly, that doesn't work. In fact, like I said, it often does the opposite. It actually makes it worse many times. So don't do that. What you can do is you can reframe the meaning of events, which is called reappraisal. Um, that can work. So, uh, you know, maybe it's like when you remind yourself, oh, this is just a test, right? It's like, it feels like a really big thing, but it's just a test. You reframe a meaning. Um, there's also kind of a theoretical thing that you could do, which I don't know how effective it is, but you can, um, it's, it's called the dual emotion solution. Um, so emotions can counterbalance each other. So sadness, for example, one effect of sadness is that it increases discount rates, which basically means like we talked about before, you might choose the easy road now rather than more of something later with a harder, harder work later, right? Um, sadness makes you more likely to take that immediate gratification thing and, and not do the longer term thing. But gratitude does the reverse. So if you can cultivate gratitude when you're sad, it might maybe counterbalance that. I don't know. It seems like a little bit tough to manage for me. But the one that I think is, you know, Learner thinks this last one is difficult, but I, it, it may be, but I think it's probably the best shot often. Um, and this is increased awareness of your misattributions. So, and there's been studies here. If you know, if you're just aware of your incidental emotions, that can reduce their impact. So just being aware of them. So when, when like we talked about the weather affecting people's evaluation, if you just remind people, oh, you know, the weather is bad today, that could affect your evaluation. Knowing that reduces the impact of the emotion that they felt about the weather on their evaluation, right? Um, another thing that reduces it is accountability. Um, being accountable, like, oh, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to uh, present this to other people. Um, 
that putting inserting accountability can help reduce the impact of emotions. So the reason I'm sharing all of this with you guys is, um, you know, my takeaway from all of this in terms of how to think clearly and thinking clearly generally is that we really should be practicing being aware of our emotional state, particularly when we encounter ideas that we don't like, right? Um, particularly when you're trying to, when you sit down, someone, someone in chat earlier said they're still working on the uh, anarchist handbook, right? When you get to that, you know, you get to one of those essays by like Emma Goldman or whatever, you're going to have, you may have, I did, you may have an immediate visceral reaction like, ah, fucking commie, right? Um, be aware of that emotional state. Being aware of that emotional state will help you evaluate the arguments more objectively and time delay as well. So practice being aware, practice time delay, don't suppress emotions, don't pretend that you don't like, you know, sometimes, sometimes we want to pretend that we don't have negative feelings, which is why about stuff like which is why I like to admit sometimes like, hey, yeah, I want to throw commies out of helicopters. Like, yeah, I've got Pinochet syndrome often. I often get so upset with commies that I, I literally want to do the Pinochet thing. That's what I feel. Will I do that? No. But admitting and knowing that that's my emotional response helps me to, like, let it go and evaluate what's being said or the situation a little bit more clearly. Just admitting to myself, yep, that's a tendency. That's the dark side of me. That's, that's how I feel about these guys, right? Really can't stand the commies. Um, so, um, try not to suppress, maybe reframe, um, reframe things as an opportunity to learn. So when I was reading some of the Kami essays in Anarchist Handbook, I was like, okay, well, I can learn from these guys. Maybe I can at least learn how do they think? What's their thought process? How do they get to these conclusions? Because they're not dumb. A lot of them are not dumb. They're smart. Um, and many of them are smart and courageous and good thinkers. They just, I they think they've made some critical errors along the way, but understanding where they're coming from and how they formulated those arguments is helpful. Um, so reframing this instead of like, I've got to read the stupid commie essay to I'm gonna learn about why, like, why do people think like this? How do they arrive at these conclusions? This is an opportunity for me to understand um, this disease that's spread across the globe. Um, and the paper doesn't, the paper that I, was just referring to it doesn't talk about this, but I think that the more solid your conceptual hierarchy is, right, the more uh, the, the fewer internal contradictions it has, and the more it comports with reality, um, the more likely your heuristic responses will be accurate, right? Um, that's, that's my I, I have some reasons behind why I think that but I that's, I think, how you want to train that intuition and some of those heuristic responses. One of the things you do to train that is to is to have your your explicit um, concept hierarchy, your explicit model of the universe, be as accurate as possible and as free from error as possible. Obviously, no one's is going to be perfect, um, and no, and none of us are ever going to be perfect or objective in our thinking. But that's the goal that we should strive for when we're trying to think deeply about stuff, especially, you know, politics, philosophy, ethics, the kind of things that you probably want to argue about on Twitter. Um, now, some people take all this stuff that I've, I've said, and they use this as an excuse to not try. They say, well, 
Emotions influence think thinking, therefore no one can ever be objective, therefore you're just as wrong as I am because it's all emotions. That's not true, it's completely false. Um, it is not how that works. Uh, the way you communicate is only through, is only, you can only really communicate through reason. I mean, you can communicate your emotion, but you can't, you can't use your emotion as an argument for someone else, it doesn't work. Um, and the way you get to closer to objective reality, closer to defining that is through being outside of an echo chamber. It's through, uh, you know, getting out of New Zealand metaphorically, right? And, and fighting with the ideas, like accept, like analyzing, considering, accepting those ideas that are contrary to what you think, figuring out where the errors are, if there are any, maybe they're on your side, maybe that other person was right. Um, and, uh, and kind of practicing that, that's how you get closer to objectivity. Um, but this doesn't mean that just like, well, everyone's just emotional, therefore I don't have to listen to anyone, just my feelings reign supreme. That's not, that's not what that means. Because um, you gotta remember, emotions, emotions are never ever arguments. They are not arguments, right? Um, you have to require other people to give you reasons without the emotional content. I mean, they can have emotional content in it, but the reasons have to be what they're giving you. And you need to only expect other people to listen to your reasons. They, they're not gonna, they don't need to react to your emotions as much as sometimes you want them to, right? And, and my advice would just not, you know, don't waste your time on people who respond to reason with emotions. If you make a reasoned argument and they say, you're stupid, just, that's not, a, that's just, a, it's not even a response. It's just an emotional response. It just, a lot of responses, in fact, I've noticed this on, on, uh, on YouTube quite a lot, a lot of negative, Responses, some of them are very helpful. You forgot this, you're wrong about that, blah, blah, blah. They have, that's great. A lot of them, a lot of the negative responses basically boil down to, you give me bad feels, right? That's kind of what it means. That's not an argument. Uh, don't waste your time with those people. All right. I went a little bit over an hour today, but I think I, I think I'm, I think I got it all. Uh, I'm sorry that I did not do too much. I looked at chat a little bit more, but not as much uh, as I could have. Anyway, I'm going to look at chat here for one more minute before we call it a night. Um, let's see, Carter's not feeling well. I'm, I'm okay. I just, you know, I'm on drugs. Uh, we're the truck driver. Our brain is the entire semi. Uh, let's see. Thinking about how we think. Yep, that's what we're doing here. Carter <laughs> Ross says, Carter's thinking about thinking clearly while, by his own admission, not thinking clearly. Yeah, I'm not thinking as clearly as I could be. So you should take that into account. Um, but I'm being honest with you guys. That's what's going on with me right now. So uh, let's see. Ross Trevatera says, your gut feeling's right about 80% of the time. I don't know if that's true. I think it depends on the situation right? Like there's that book by, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, right? I think he talks about this in this book. I could be confusing my books, but, um, you know, if you show me a painting and ask me whether it's a forgery or not, you say, here is a Picasso. Is it a forgery? I, I mean, my gut is going to be useless. I have no idea, right? But if, if I were an art critic and a Picasso expert, and I had been for 40 years, 
uh, and you show me that and you let me look at it for a second and take it away, my gut reaction is probably going to be much more accurate because all of that, I will have built out that part of my con concept hierarchy all about the warning signs and things to notice and all that, like all that stuff will be kind of there. And I think likely that will inform my, um, my gut reaction. So I might be able to achieve 80% or whatever you're saying. Um, but, but I Carter probably wouldn't cause I don't even like Picasso. So I don't know anything about Picasso and I don't really care if Picasso is a forgery cause I think he sucks anyway. So, all right. I think, I think that's it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. I know it was kind of a, a little bit of a weird, uh, a little bit of a weird show. Um, as a reminder, I do, I do really appreciate, uh, hearing what con like what stuff you want me to talk about. Uh, some people have submitted, uh, words that you want, uh, defined or just topics that you want me to talk about. Um, one of them, we will talk about peaceful parenting at some point. I know people want to talk about that. Um, I may actually start to have some people on the show, uh, once in a while to kind of just have someone to bounce ideas off of and, and explore topics with. So that may happen. Um, but I am, I am really looking forward to getting some feedback from you guys. So, um, you know, please let me know what you want to see in future episodes in the comments or, or send an email to speak at unsafespace.com. All right. Well, that said, uh, I'm going to go take some more, <laughs> take some more muscle relaxers and go crazy or just probably just fall asleep. Um, so have a good night, everyone else. We will see you. What's today? Wednesday. We'll see everyone on Friday for Kofefi break. Carrie should be back for Kofefi break. I think she's feeling better from the COVID. So, um, you'll see her then. Take care. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and scheduled for ideological vaccination. To avoid cancellation, please update your ideological contact tracing app on your smart device immediately. Here's a fun fact. Only vaccinated black lives matter. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't think about it, I mean, that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. 
Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.